Good morning. Well, let's begin this part of our service this morning. This part of the service where we have our our word, the word, the intake of his word through the preaching. But let's begin with with a prayer. Bow with me. Father, we are grateful to be before you this morning. We come as beggars. We come to you as those in great need of your son Jesus Christ to sustain us in this life. I pray that we come this morning hungry. Hungry to worship you. To exalt you. To bring you glory. I pray that we as a church are completely committed to you. Completely focused on you. On how we can serve you. Help us to understand the many ways that we can reach out to the community around us with the gospel. Help us understand ways of how we can serve one another with the gospel. I want to pray for our our nursing home ministry this morning, which has been such a wonderful way to think outside of us, to, to reach out to those in great need in the waning days of their life. And we're thankful for those opportunities at Focus Care and at the Vista Nursing Home. I'm thankful for the members that are serving faithfully there, serving those elderly that live there 24-7 who, who need the gospel as much as at any other time in their life. I pray that you will graciously work through the preaching, the devotionals, the singing, the prayers that occur there on a regular basis and that it brings much needed encouragement to those people there. I also want to pray for one of our local churches this morning. I want to pray for First Baptist South Houston and also Harvest Baptist Church as they continue to go down this path of considering a merger Please encourage Pastor Will Ryden and Jonathan Moreno as they continue to work on this endeavor. Lord, it has been a labor. And we pray for patience and understanding as they work through difficult issues surrounding the merger. And we pray that the gospel witness will continue through these men and these congregations in the city of South Houston. We pray that it would not die out, that it would be a light on a hill in that place of darkness. And as they preach this morning, may your glory be displayed as your truth is delivered. We want to pray for Taylor Wall. We were so grateful to have him this past Wednesday. And thankful for the work that's happening there and the update that he gave us and 
And he gave us such great insight into the strategic nature of his ministry. And I pray that our hearts would be with him. That we would be now better informed on how we can pray and how we can serve, how we can financially support. Um, We're just thankful for the gospel ministry and the training that's happening there and the insights that he has and the vision that he has for the people in Ecuador. We pray that you protect him and his family as they faithfully work there. And we pray that you bring about a full harvest as the name of Jesus Christ is exalted. And Lord, we come now just praying that as we read and hear your word this morning, I pray our minds are properly focused on you. Remove all the distractions that hinder our worship of you. I pray now for clarity of thought and ears to understand the wonderful truths you've revealed to us from your scriptures. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, one of the joys of parenting, for those of us who have children, is watching our children grow up. At times, Jessica and I will will text each other old pictures of our children when, when they were young. And one of the things I like about the pictures, besides the memories, is seeing how far they've come in life. It seems like yesterday we were changing their diapers and feeding them soft foods and Cheerios and and letting them lay in our laps as they slept. Those days, at least those particular days, are long gone. And so we see the pictures and reflect on the joys and challenges of those days. And now for for my children, uh, they've, they've grown and some are still growing. One is about to graduate from college, two are in high school, and one keeps us busy talking about chickens. This commitment to care for their needs and seeing them grow up is is something that our family was dedicated to do. And not just Jessica and I, but our, our children as well, they're part of that process. But there had to be a commitment, there had to be an effort to bring about this growth in their life. We couldn't neglect it. We had to feed them so that they grew physically. We had to train them in school so that they could fulfill their academic goals. And of course, they're still working on some of those academic goals. But the ultimate goal there, and all of this stuff that we do to raise our children, is Lord willing to bring about maturity. It is a maturation process. And so how does this maturity happen? Well, first, it takes time. I mean, it takes a lot of time. Parents must carve out time in their schedule and dedicate it to the family, especially the kids. When we fail to give that proper time, this could impact our children's maturity. Second, we have to interact with our kids intentionally. Giving minimal effort usually produces minimal results. 
And third, we have to avoid being lazy. And I don't know about you, but for me, that is one of my biggest challenges, one of my biggest struggles. Obviously, there is more to maturity than this, but it is certainly not less than this. This idea of maturity also applies to our spiritual life. It takes time. We have to make an effort. We have to avoid being lazy. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 14 says, For by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. From this passage in Hebrews, we see that spiritual maturity requires constant practice. Our passage today in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-11 through 11, God has given us this passage to help us grow spiritually as we strive toward spiritual maturity. Our passage will talk about what God and Jesus have accomplished for the people of God. Our passage will talk about the ethical expectations for the people of God. And our passage will talk about the reward for the people of God if they remain faithful. So let's read the passage. Turn there now, 2 Peter, if you haven't already turned there. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, in virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. 
For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let's begin with verses 3 and 4. The main theme there to think about, or one of the main themes to think about, is deliverance. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. In these two verses, we see three things. First, we see what God has done. Peter is trying to lay down a basic reminder for these Christians. The basic reminder centers around the phrase divine power. The word divine is not a typical New Testament word in the sense that it's used often. The only other time we see it is when Paul is in Athens in the midst of the Areopagus. There, Paul is trying to help the Athenians understand who Jesus is. He is using their types of words to help them understand. It's like when I want to talk with another accountant, being an accountant, about a financial situation. I may use accounting terms that they understand to help with our communication. The idea of language accommodation may be what Peter is doing here. He is probably using a word familiar to them, to his readers. And quite possibly it is a word that the false teachers uh, are using in this church within this letter. And if you're, if you're familiar with this letter, you will remember that chapter 2 deals with false prophets and teachers And so Peter is building himself here with these verses that we're going through and pushing towards one of the main issues that's going on within this church, which centers around these false teachers and prophets. So Peter uses the word divine to describe power. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And at this point, You have to decide whose divine power. Is it God's? If you're looking at the context there, is it it God's power? Is it Jesus's power, his divine power? Is it both? Now, I'm not going to have time to completely settle all of that. But I think given the context and the flow of this passage, it is probably best uh, to see it as God's divine power. So God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What is this power? Is this power something that comes from the very nature of God and is imparted to these Christians? Some contend this. However, it's probably referring to the saving power of God. To save a sinner from God's wrath, it takes divine power, the divine power of God Himself. 
We see Paul using this language of accommodation to drive home what God's power did to change their lives at this church. Peter is also trying to identify with these believers. He uses the words us and ours to connect with his audience, to identify with them. In fact, throughout this first chapter, we see these two words often. Verse 1, Peter says their faith is equal with ours. In verse 3 and 4, the passage we're in right now, Peter says, Jesus granted divine power and his precious and very great promises to us. Peter makes several references to Jesus as our Lord and our Savior numerous times in this first chapter. Peter labors to show the bond that they have as fellow believers in Christ. And next, Peter explains the sufficiency of God's power. God's power has given these believers everything for life and godliness. Now, I want to take a moment to point out a writing feature in this particular letter. In this passage, we see Peter using pairs of words. For example, life and godliness. That's two words he's using together. Glory and moral excellence in verse 3. Useful or unfruitful in verse 8. Calling and election in verse 10. These pairs of words generally refer to the same idea. For instance, Peter uses these two words, life and godliness, to express how these believers should live their lives. The focus of their lives should be oriented to pleasing God. God did not save them so that they could live their lives for their own pleasure. God invested his power in them to change them from a self-centered focus to a God-pleasing focus. Now, the second thing I want you to see in verses 3 and 4 is how God gave them what they needed. How God gave them what they needed. God's divine power gave knowledge. It gave knowledge. The knowledge is not merely the word gnosis, if you happen to know uh, that word. Many of you probably have heard it in some teachings. And it's common in the New Testament for the word knowledge. But that's not the word he uses. He uses the word epigenosis. Now, gnosis is the content of what is known. That type of knowledge is the content of what is known. And epigenosis is the content of what is definitely known. And so there's a distinction there. And I think it's intentional that Peter's doing it. Douglas Moo says... It is an intimate and informed relationship that is the product of conversion to the gospel. This type of definite knowledge, again, this intimate and informed relationship that is the product of conversion to the gospel, this type of definite knowledge that Peter wants them to remember. 
It is knowledge directed at God who calls us to his own glory and moral excellence. And here we have another pair of words, glory and moral excellence. This points to their purpose in life, living for the glory of God and according to the excellence of God's character. This high or this standard is a high standard. But remember that this is what God accomplished for these believers. They were made righteous by the power of God in Jesus Christ. God gave them a definite, full knowledge of what it means to live in a way that is pleasing to Him. And this brings us to the third thing in verse 4. We see why God gave them what they needed. We see why God gave them what they needed. God had a purpose. He had a purpose. They were delivered so that they would share in the divine nature. Peter is probably, again, using accommodating language to connect with his audience. Some of his audience would have connected this language with the pantheistic religions during that time. However, Peter is redefining it in light of the gospel. God's divine power allows them to share in God's nature. And that's perplexing. And we don't fully understand how that works. I'm not going to be able to completely explain that to you. We don't become little gods. We can, we can certainly affirm that. But we, we become more like Christ. We are being conformed to the image of Christ. We were created in the image of God. But none of this makes us divine like God is divine. However, it does empower us to live for the glory of God and to live to his standard. This is why Peter says that they have escaped from the corruption that is in the world. And I like what we see at the end of this verse. God reveals to us the source of sinfulness that that we often express. And it comes from our desire. And we see this idea, the same idea in James chapter 1, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The point of verses 3 and 4 reminds these Christians of God's great work of deliverance. God extended his precious and very great promises to these believers. He gave them everything they needed to fulfill their purpose in life. He gave them the definite knowledge to overcome their sinful desire so that they may live in a way that pleases God and reflects His glory. So let's go to verses 5 and 9, 5 through 9. And the idea here is, is obedience, and, and we're going to get into progressive sanctification. Let's read this, these verses again. Verse 5. 
For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, in virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, in self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. In verses 5 through 7, Peter gives us a list of virtues. The foundation for this list is the work of God's divine power in the lives of these believers. The basis is verses 3 and 4. And don't forget that as you're going through this. The flow of Peter's thought seems to have a covenantal feel to it. Based on the work of God, you should be obedient. Based on God's deliverance, you should strive for moral excellence, reflecting the moral excellence of God. And striving is the right word because of the persistence Peter expects of these believers. He tells them to make every effort. Don't hold back anything. Give it all you got. Keep pushing to grow. So, is Peter's list a step-by-step guide to spiritual growth? It's a tempting question for us. For many of us, we like lists. Is that you? How many of you are list people? Yeah? So you're you're feeling this. You're feeling this passage. There is a a sense of satisfaction when we check off items on our list. It feels good. However, a bit of caution here. I don't think we should quite view this list in that way. Now, it's an important list, but I don't think you need to view it as I need to check this off and boom, I've got maturity and holiness as if it quite works that way. It's also interesting to compare this list with other virtue lists in the New Testament. Uh, You'll see similarities and differences, which is one of the cautions. Is this list exhaustive? In some ways, no, because when you look at the other list. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, we see some similarities with our list. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. There's a similarity. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. There's a similarity. Gentleness, self-control, another similarity. Against such thing, there is no law. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, we actually see differences. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever commendable, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
And so there's a lot of differences there compared to our passage today. So what does this mean? What does this mean for us? God has given these virtue lists to help us understand what being a faithful Christian looks like. As believers, we have a moral responsibility before God to be holy. This means we should pattern our lives after the holiness of God since that is our standard. All of the virtue lists that we read in the New Testament are designed by God to help us know what holiness looks like. So if you were asking yourself, what does holiness look like? Here it is. This is part of it. This is a a part of the biblical portrait of holiness. These eight characteristics are part of the knowledge that God has given us with his divine power to help us live for his glory and up to his standard of excellence. So let's examine the list. The list of virtues is a part of all things that pertain to life and godliness in verses 5 through 7. The first one, faith. The first one is faith. Fitting that this is, this is the starting point. Because in our spiritual journey, it all begins when we believe. When we have faith. Peter is talking about a faith that is born out of the promises of God. Again, verses 3 and 4. God delivers his people from the corruption in the world. God's people then respond in faith in the one who delivers on his promises. One Puritan wrote, A life of faith lives in the strength of a promise. Faith reasons with God on the basis of his promises with a holy kind of reasoning. And when it says, or when he says faith reasons with God, it means faith finds its justification with God. Our faith reasons and works with God because it is where our faith is strengthened. Another Puritan said, he that lives upon the promises lives by faith. And the life of faith is the only safe and true life in the world. The Christian life feeds upon the promises of God. It grounds and drives our faith. And so does your faith feel weak at times? Maybe it feels weak now. I believe this is the situation that Peter faces with these Christians in this letter. Their faith is wavering. A wavering faith forgets the promises of God. If your faith is faltering, Peter's words are for you. Cling to God's promises. The promise that you have been delivered from the corruption that is in the world. Cling to God's promise. The promise that you are delivered from your sinful desires. 
Now, based on that promise, you must move with all force towards God's glory and moral excellence. Which is the second quality here, moral excellence. Moral excellence, uh, this virtue and the others are building upon one another. Peter's emphasis is on building without delay. There is a sense of urgency, you know, move with speed. Hasten to supplement your faith with moral excellence. And now you may be asking, what does moral excellence look like? Or the word you see in in the ESV is uh, virtue. What does moral excellence look like? And that's a good question. Peter is making the point that followers of Christ live their lives differently than the world. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Christians are different. By definition, we are different. We should not look like the world. Our passions should be holy. Our thoughts should be holy. Our desires should be holy. Our whole life should be marked by moral excellence as defined by God's standard for excellence. Peter next urges the Christians to supplement their moral excellence with knowledge. And this time, Peter uses the word gnosis, again, which is the content of what is known. Peter points out that our minds are engaged with our faith. We shouldn't divorce those two things. We don't check out our brains when we worship God. We don't check out our brains when we live by faith. In the Christian worldview, the mind and faith are not at odds. All parts of humanity should be sanctified and engaged in striving for moral excellence. The thoughts in our head should be focused on honoring God and growing closer to God so that we worship in spirit and truth. Peter then exhorts the Christian to supplement their knowledge with self-control. Physical restraint is an important part of the Christian ethic. Again, as royal ambassadors for the kingdom of God, Christians are charged to refrain from the physical indulgences of the world. And an important component of this is sexual restraint. These Christians faced sexual temptations. And we're no different. We're no different. This word is oftentimes used for athletes uh, during this period of time. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, 
but we an imperishable. Athletes had to show physical restraint in what they ate and drank and sexual activity to compete at their best. They had to take care of their bodies. Christians are in the same position. To fulfill God's expectations for holiness, Christians must control their bodily temptations by resisting. Resistance and fleeing should be words that Christians embrace and frequently use. Next, Peter pushes these Christians to persevere. These first century Christians face trials and tribulations. And this is a basic truth for the age of the church. Christians are living in, tri- in the tribulation. We're here. This is why John says, He is your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. We see that in Re- Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. Later in Peter's second letter, he writes that you should remember that predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your, through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. We will be attacked. These Christians are facing the scoffers predicted by the holy prophets and the commands of Jesus Christ. These believers must stand their ground and endure. And brothers and sisters, that's us today as well. We must stand our ground and endure. Peter then exhorts the believers to godliness. All of their beliefs and practices need to be oriented towards God. The context for this word may be focused on living amongst sexual perversion because of what Peter talks about in chapter 2. Sexual sin is often one of the biggest threats to godly lives. Some of you today may feel this is an empty exhortation because of your struggles with sexual sins. Let me assure you, it's not an empty exhortation. Remember verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. When God delivered these Christians from the corruption of this world, they were given everything they needed to believe and live like a follower of Christ, and especially in this type of situation. Yes, they live among ungodly people. So did Noah. So did Lot. And these are examples Peter gives us in chapter 2 of this letter. Yet they persevered and lived lives oriented towards God according to the scriptures. And that's our expectation for us as well. The last two virtues are two different words for love. Brotherly kindness or brotherly affection is the word Philadelphia. You're, uh, it is brotherly love. So brotherly kindness is that first one. As Peter is progressing towards a crescendo, and that's what we see here with this, this list of virtues, is it's progressing. 
And there is a crescendo. He is moving towards love. When Jesus is asked, what is the greatest command? He points his disciples to love. And part of that is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Peter ends with love, which is where Jesus declares is the greatest command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. On these two aspects of love depend all of the law and prophets. This love ethic should be the direction of our lives as we pursue godliness. One writer says, We who profess and hold the precious faith of Christ in truth, do we also make him our all in all? By our tongue, he may be heard, but in our lives and deeds, is he to be found? Is he to be found in how we live? As you look at these eight virtues, Peter has a good understanding of the Christian struggles. I think he's got a good handle on that. He knows we all come up short. He is pointing believers to transformation. It starts with God's precious and very great promises. Based on these promises of deliverance from corruption, we establish and build upon our faith. As we progress and draw closer to God, we increase our moral excellence, our knowledge, our self-control, our perseverance, our godliness, and our brotherly kindness. It then culminates into full maturity when we love God and others more than ourselves, just as Jesus Christ did. These verses are a beautiful picture of progressive sanctification. It shows that the Christian life is a series of steps in growth. Just as a baby begins with simple movements such as rolling over before walking, so does the Christian life. It begins with faith and then moves toward a mature love for God. Looking at verses 8 and 9, we ask this question, are these qualities yours? Are these qualities yours? In verse 8 it says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. In verse 8, it says, If these qualities are yours and are increasing, that is the challenge laid before Peter's readers. If they don't possess the virtues, then they are useless. To be labeled ineffective And unfruitful is an indictment. You are useless. You are nearsighted and blind. If you think about this, this is strong language. Imagine this. Imagine if Tommy went up to you 
And he says, brother, you're ineffective. You're useless. Or if Bruce goes up to you and says, your Christian walk is unfruitful. I don't know about you, but that would cut. That would cut to the core for me as a professing believer. Well, that's what Peter is doing here to these believers. He is cutting them to the core. He has a serious concern for them in the direction of their Christian walk. He straight up challenges them to stop and examine their lives in light of the promises of God. He is pushing them to make every effort to supplement their faith. Verses 10 and 11, I've labeled it as the entrance. And it says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never, fa- you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Fervent growth in verse 10. Peter reinforces what he is saying in verses 5 and nine, five through 9. And now he does it in a more concise manner. The idea of confirming your calling and election is not questioning your salvation. It's about assuring your salvation. Believers need to be reminded of their ethical responsibilities as followers of Christ. This passage is an assault on the idea of easy believism. Merely praying a prayer and being baptized is not salvation. If God has delivered you from the worldly corruption that was born out of your sinful desires, then live like it. God has given you the divine knowledge of what that looks like. There's no excuse. Peter gives you a list of godly characteristics that every believer should exhibit. By practicing moral excellence, you confirm your calling and election. By growing in your knowledge of God, you confirm your calling and and election. By exercising self-control, especially in the area of sexual temptation, you confirm your calling and election. By persevering during trials and temptations, you confirm your calling and election. By loving God and others around you, you confirm your calling and election. This is how you can be assured of your salvation and you will never fall away from the faith. The prize for growth is what we see in verse 11. In verse 11, Peter provides hope for the laborer. Your efforts to grow spiritually uh, will bear fruit rather than being unfruitful. Peter says the believer's reward is the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is why I had Dennis read that very long passage, so that you get a picture of that eternal kingdom. You get a clear picture of it. 
That is the reward that is assured. By referring to the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ, it reminds us of Psalm 8.6. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. It also reminds us of Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That is the kingdom of Christ. It is Jesus who reigns. It is Jesus we serve and it is Jesus we follow. We do this by believing and growing in faith. One thing to note about our entrance into the eternal kingdom of Christ is that it's another divine promise. It's another divine promise. As sure as God has saved us through Jesus Christ, we are sure to enter into eternal glory. It's a sure thing, and this should bring us hope. As we journey towards this great and awesome entrance, we must be ready. And we must ready ourselves. We must rid ourselves of remnants of our old sinful nature. We must put to death the deeds of the flesh. When we show up to the marriage feast of the Lamb, we want to be prepared by looking our best. Progressive sanctification. Our passage today provides us great insight into this great doctrine that is so vital uh, to our Christian walk. Let me read this summary that captures the heart of this doctrine. Listen carefully. Coming to Christ is not a once in a lifetime decision, nor is it a momentary act of the will that has no implications for the present and future. Rather, as Thomas Boston reminded us, coming to Christ is our first and last step toward Christ. Boston wrote that by our union and communion with Christ, the believer launches forth into an ocean of happiness, is led into a paradise of pleasures, and has a saving interest in the treasure hidden in the field of the gospel, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Therefore, the saints must strive constantly to draw fresh supplies of grace from the fountain of Christ by faith. We must come to Christ not just once for justification from the guilt of sin, but every day of our lives for ongoing sanctification. Christ is not just the door. He is also the way to heaven. Indeed, he is the glory of heaven itself. This truly brings to life the reality of growing in Christ. Our growth does not happen in an instant. I know we want that. I know we would love that, but that's not reality. We have a responsibility to keep pushing for godliness. We must draw fresh supplies of grace from the fountain of Christ by faith. Our confession, 1689, reminds us of, of this responsibility when it says, 
the practice of true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, is thus promoted. Did you catch that? The practice of true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, is thus promoted. Many of you may say, yes, I want to see the Lord, but man, I'm struggling. I continue to fail in my pursuit of holiness. You may be struggling to the point of giving up. It's affecting your assurance of salvation. Maybe there are difficult questions that create a barrier in your mind. Maybe your feelings are impacting your faith. Maybe being around non-believers creates difficult situations for you and temptations. Maybe you forget just how much sin impacts your daily life because you're so immersed in the things of this world. Or maybe you don't forget how much sin impacts your life. Maybe you do see that. You realize it and it just overwhelms you. During all these types of times in our lives, we must move our thoughts from these destructive lives that rob us of our hope in Christ. We must begin where Peter begins, faith grounded in God's grace. Tom Askell writes, ordinary means of grace have been provided by God for both the gathering and perfecting of his people. The gathering refers to conversion. Perfecting refers to maturing. Ask also continues by saying, the means that God has provided for creating faith in his people are the same means by which he intends for them to grow in faith. Peter's list of virtues is a means of grace given to the church to grow in faith. If your faith is stale and stagnant, pursue the means of grace God has put before you today. My fellow saints, you have the divine power. You have it. You have the divine power to use these means of grace to grow in godliness. It is yours today. Now, friends, there are some of you out there here today who are not grounded in the promises of God that we see in verses 3 and 4. You have not escaped from the corruption that is in this world. In fact, you love that corruption. You desire the destructive things of this world. You know it is wrong, yet you find pleasure in it. You are in grave danger. One day you will give an account before God. You will have to defend yourself, but you will not have a defense. You will be judged severely and rightly. And so my plea to you is to stop. Stop running from God. You will grow tired because you cannot get away from Him. 
Stop trying to live your life without Him. He is the creator and sustainer of this world. You exist because of Him. Stop thinking that someday I might turn to God in the future. But let me tell you, don't delay. You have no guarantee for tomorrow or for another hour. Stop thinking that you have everything perfectly figured out. The infinite God is not something we will ever know perfectly, yet He has given us everything we need for salvation. Jesus Christ died on the cross to save sinners just like you. God demands payment for our sins. That payment is satisfied with the blood of Jesus Christ. So what are you waiting on? What are you waiting on? Come to Jesus Christ. Believe in this amazing work of Jesus Christ. You can have God's grace, mercy, and peace if you will come to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Make this the day you say, I am following Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, your mercy and grace are rich. I pray for those who have been fleeing from you, who have been running from you, would stop and bend their knee to these great promises of deliverance. That they would see the great work and the loving work of our Savior. Lord, please draw them to you. Today, may they believe and trust in you. And Lord, for those of us who just continue to try to live faithfully for you, may this passage today remind us and encourage us. May it give us hope. This list can seem daunting, except you have given us everything we need to do it. And so may we continue to pursue holiness May we continue to strive and work diligently. Be patient with us, Lord, as you have been up to this point in time. Continue to be patient with us and help us to continue to love you as we should. In Christ's name, amen. Let's rise for our benediction. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen.